0: Well, welcome to Lesson 8, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, The last couple of weeks we've focused on key passages in the New Testament that spoke of um, different roles in the church, uh, different uh, male and female roles. Today we're going to address some... Uh, passages that uh, some egalitarians go to to come to a different conclusion. Now, uh, I've used that word egalitarian a little bit so far. What, What I mean by that is people who hold the position that men and women are basically equal in everything, not just position before God, but also their roles, and so it's kind of an interchangeability uh, between men and women. That's the egalitarian. The egal is, I guess, rooted in that word equal. Uh, our position would be complementarian, right? We, we see the roles as being complementary uh, by God's design, not interchangeable. So. Um, We're going to look at, I think, four different passages today and um, see how they're being uh, interpreted by egalitarians and then uh, delve a little bit deeper into what they really mean. So, the first objection they go to is in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, where... Uh, they say Paul commends Phoebe as a leader in the early church so women can take on leadership roles in the church. And so that passage says, at the very end of Romans, chapter 16, Paul writes, I commend, you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So the objection here is rooted in two words. First of all, that word servant, and then later the word helper. So the word servant is diakonon, which is... Uh, the same root as the word deacon and um, so they argue that that's basically referring to her as a deaconess in that church a female deacon and they also contend that the noun helper in verse 2 comes from uh, a verb that means to be over, to superintend, to preside over, and therefore signifying that Phoebe had authority over others in the church, including Paul, by by what Paul says. Um, so, what do we do with that? right? Well, let's look at those two in turn. First, as a deaconess, um, that Greek word can refer either to the church office of a deacon or simply, what does the word mean? Servant, right? Diakonon means servant. And so it can refer either to that role of a deacon, as we looked at in 1 Timothy 3, or it can be used in a broad number of other ways that are more related to that position of servanthood, serving others. And so, for example, in Romans 13, it's being used here and translated in the NASB as minister. Uh, that is a, a civil, in this case, a civil servant. Right? It's the same word for... It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God. And so uh, that same word is not being used as, you know, the civil government is not a deacon in the church, right? But there's a service that's being rendered that it's making reference to. Likewise, in chapter 15 of Romans, we read, uh, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So here, Christ is referred to as a diaconon, a servant, uh, in this case to the Jews. And so, is it saying that he is a deacon in the church? No. It's saying he's showing by his example of servanthood, this um, important role, in fact, in his case, in in this verse, to the Jews. And then 1 Timothy 4, Paul, of course, writing to Timothy, this is one of the pastoral epistles, so he's writing to Timothy uh, to help him um, um, in his role as a pastor in the church in Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. So he's he's saying that, Timothy, if you do these things as you're leading the church, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Well, he's, he's an elder. He's not a deacon, right? But he's serving, um, all those who are in positions of leadership are, by God's design, servants, right? Uh, If it's in the public sphere, we call them civil servants. If it's in the family, it's it's servant leadership in the home and likewise in the church. And so the fact that the word is used here in different contexts that don't refer to the, the official role of a deacon in the church suggests that we need to know from the context, both the immediate context of a verse and the context of all of scripture, whether in this case, 1 Timothy 16, I'm sorry, Romans 16.1, where it refers to Phoebe as a servant of the church, which is a centria, does that necessarily mean that she was in a position of authority there? No, it doesn't. How do we know? How to interpret it? Well, you look at this context, and which doesn't provide a lot of clues, actually, um, but look also at all of Scripture. What do we see? And so when we covered uh, the role of deacons uh, a few weeks ago, um, it, there was no provision there for a... A, uh, a role of a deaconess that is just interchangeable with a deacon. Now, there is a role for women leaders in the church, um, but it is a distinct role. It's, it's a, a targeted role to help uh, encourage and build up the other women, uh, perhaps ministry with children perhaps ministries and evangelism, whatever it might be. Um, but there's no particular provision for the office of a female deacon. Um, and this particular passage is not a very strong basis to make that claim, because it presumably just means a servant in that local church. Uh, In fact, all of us are supposed to be serving, right? Serving one another, serving Christ. And so Paul is particularly thankful for her service, uh, not only at that church, but also, as he says later here, helping him as well. Um, On the bottom of page 40, the other point I made here is that Even if there was um, an office of deaconess provided for in Scripture, it's pretty clear from 1 Timothy 2 that it wouldn't involve exercising authority over men in the church or teaching men in the church. And so we can't take a passage like this and say, well, I'm going to make the assumption that it's referring to her as a deaconess and they're having some authority, and then just forget about 1 Timothy 2. Right? So we have to take it in the context of all of Scripture. And um, that's what people don't do. That's what people tend not to do. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy to take one verse and run with it, right? With with all sorts of. And read into it, meaning that's. Not really there. Yes. Okay. Uh, so there's that second word there in that passage, that word that's translated in the New American Standard as helper. And I'm on the top of page 41 here now. So does that connote that she had some authority? Uh in the church. Well, um, often we can gain some insight as to how that word is, how any word that we're investigating, how it's used elsewhere in scripture. And it turns out that doesn't help us here because this is the only place that word is used uh, in the in the female... Uh, so... Um, some English translations have used synonyms like helper here or patron or benefactor. Um, there's one lexicon I'm, I'm quoting here that says it ha- carries the meaning of a female guardian a protectress, patroness, uh, caring for the affairs of others and aiding them with her resources. So it's kind of a a lot of different ways it could have been applied. Um, There is a male counterpart to that noun, but it's not used in the New Testament. And this is the only case this this word is used, and so it's used in the female sense. And um, it would be easy to make the conclusion that uh, since elsewhere at that time, the male form of this word, this noun, generally did carry the connotation of um, having responsibility and authority over others, uh, it's not um, um, a foregone conclusion in the Greek, that the female form of the word would have the same connotation because it's often the case that um, um, both the the connection between the, the noun form and the verb form and the male and the female, they carry different meanings. Uh, they're not all this indistinguishable depending on the form. Yeah? Well,
1: I'm thinking about this word authority and... I don't have a particular issue with it because um, there's different types of authority. Um, there's, there's nuances to it. So I'm thinking about our church, for instance, and there there are women in this church um, who have authority. They don't have authority, you know, in a spiritual sense of reigning over men, for instance, but they have authority. If if I. If I, if I want to get something done in, in, the, in the office, I'm gonna to have to speak to one of those ladies. I can't go in there and just touch the the copier, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how and how do I see those women back there? I see them as women who have authority in that area. And so that doesn't create a problem for me. And I think some, sometimes, you know, believers can get um, tripped up, or just, not even believe it, just people in general about about that. And, and I have no problem saying, well, these, these women have authority back there. They run this office. They're responsible for the equipment, they're responsible for um, taking care of the needs of the elders and other folks who, who need the services back there, it, 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 et cetera. And uh, the women's ministry, the, the women who, who run that, they have authority. So I, I just wanted to point that out. I mean, that, that, that is not something that, that scares me as a man, for instance, that, right. that, that, that I have to go to be women to ask permission to do certain things.
0: Right. Yeah, so that's a good point, uh, but that's not the point they're making. Right. You know, the point they're making here, and particularly the way Paul has written it, she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. And so if we're interpreting as they are, this term helper to be uh, much more than helper, but rather someone who is in a position of oversight and and authority. Paul is saying, she's had that position with me as well. And so that would conflict with 1 Timothy 2, about the women having authority over men. It's not that they don't have authority in the church, in their uh, correct realms, but not over um, not over men not teaching men you know those are the restrictions we saw in first Timothy yeah, two.
1: Authority and
0: yeah, you can you think of that as responsibility carrying out responsibility in, in a in a uh, defined ministry or context or whatever it might be and that's that's fantastic um, And in that sense has been a help, has been a support, has been an encouragement, presumably, even to someone like Paul. But not having authority over Paul or any of the other men in that church. So it's not about authority per se, it's about authority over men, which would conflict with 1 Timothy 2. Um, And so those who would make that claim out of this verse... Are basically ignoring First Timothy two. They said this takes precedence over that. But the principle of of hermeneutics, Bible interpretation, is that the clear teaching takes um, has a has a heavier weight in our interpretation than a meaning that is less clear, where all you're depending on is the context. Right. It could go either way depending on the context and the context of all of scripture clearly has to govern. And in this case, other passages that we've already looked at. So, uh, yeah, what's interesting about this whole study is it gets us into the, these principles of Bible interpretation, which is key. Rather than just taking a verse and running with it, you know, out of context and um, building up something that then conflicts with other clear teaching in scripture so um, uh, sir,
1: yeah are there, are there two words for the Greek um, prostatis and prostatis are those two different ones or is that typo? one is with an action one and the other one is it a beach
0: one. yeah, yeah the, there's distinction between the noun and the verb and a distinction between the male and the female for the nouns.
1: Those are different.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And this is just me wondering, but from the word helper, prosthesis, does that word uh, is the origin of prosthesis? Or?
0: Probably. Yeah, I don't know for sure, but it sounds like it. Yeah. It sounds like it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A prosthetic a, a, a device. Helper. A, a helper, right. Right. Okay. So here's Paul making a kind of a, um, in chapter 16 of Romans, some, I don't know, what do you call them? Um, maybe not housekeeping, but general comments made in closing the letter, you know, give my regards to so-and-so and, and, and whatever, um, and what he's saying, sort of as a commendation about someone, isn't really his. Um, he's not intending there to be doing any primary teaching in that passage, um, and to build a whole, a whole interpretation and read into it an interpretation about. Um, leadership in the church without paying any regard at all to other passages in scripture is going down the wrong path. Okay. Uh, Well, let's go to number two. This is also in Romans 16. We go down to verse seven where it reads, um, greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. And so the objection they bring to this is Paul commends Junia, a woman, as an apostle. So women can hold leadership roles in the church. What about that? Well, first of all, there is some um uncertainty about whether this this is junia or junias, whether it's male or female. I think um, the balance of the evidence here is that it probably was a woman. Uh, that's not completely sure, but let's let's say for the sample, for, for argument's sake, that it is a woman. Um, So on the top of page 42 the New American Standard uses the word um, outstanding among the Apostles. I don't know what translations you might have if you have one in front of you but um, sometimes it's translated well known. Um, And because of the Uh, structure of the sentence here um, research that people have conducted into the the usage of these words at that time in the Greek say it's probably a better translation to say well known to the apostles rather than among but it's not that big a deal Uh, in other words the apostles know these people very well that's the point. Uh, even Paul says uh, they were in Christ before he was. So they, they date way back. Um, it's possible that the word apostles here could be more general than just those who were actually apostles in the early church because literally it means messengers. Of course, the apostles were messengers. They were official messengers from Christ. Um, but that same word as we see here in a couple other passages in the New Testament is used more broadly to include other people who were sort of special messengers usually messengers from the apostles to a particular church or so um, so that that's neither here nor there I don't think uh, as far as I know this is probably referring to Paul was referring to these two people being very well-known to the apostles, and uh, he wanted to reach out to them with a greeting. So, yeah.
1: so are you saying that, that folks, some folks interpret that passage as meaning that Junia, a woman, is an apostle? Is that what I'm mean? Yeah, in other words,
0: um, one of the outstanding apostles. She's among the apostles. Yeah. That's the interpretation.
1: I, I not that no matter which word you put That's why I'm just... I'm just yeah. Questioning that because I, I don't I'm not
0: picking that up right so you have to pretty much have an agenda okay. going into it in order to come out with that interpretation yeah and that's typical yeah so that that may well be referring to a woman uh, it's definite I think it's definitely referring to the apostles but this is someone who Paul is greeting um, two people who he knows are well known to um, him and other apostles, and he wanted to give them his best regards. Yeah. Uh, well, here's another interesting one. What about Priscilla and Aquila? All right, number three on page 42. Since Priscilla taught Apollos along with her husband, Aquila, and since she is listed before her husband, women can teach men in the church. So in Acts 18, verses 24 and 26, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, however. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so what is happening here? Well, Priscilla and Aquila, who are husband and wife, they're working together to help Apollos um, sharpen his doctrine, right? He's, he's a strong teacher. He's accurate in the things that he knows, but there's some things that he's not yet been taught well about. Um, and so they take him aside together and coach him a bit, and 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 uh, help him to learn. Um, and so notice that they're not teaching in the assembled church. It's just a husband and wife taking this guy off to the side to help him learn. Okay. So in that sense, uh, and because of that it doesn't conflict with 1 Timothy 2 because, first of all, she's not doing this alone. They're doing it together. And secondly, it's not in the assembled church. It's in a side conversation. Right? She's um, She's not teaching Apollos. They are teaching Apollos. Okay.
1: So I have a question. Yeah. So let's say that her husband wasn't around. And she wanted to have a side
0: conversation with Apollos. Would yeah, I don't. I don't think if it were just him taking or just her taking Apollos aside, having a private conversation, that that would conflict with First Timothy two inherently. But um, it probably would be appropriate for her to say, maybe give him a heads up that we need to talk about this and reach out to her husband so that they can have a conversation together. Uh, I think that would be a preferable way to do it. But I don't think if she were to have that conversation alone, it would necessarily conflict because the context of First Timothy 2 is the assembled church, the official teaching within the church. Yeah. Um, and so... Even in our day and age, you know, often we have couples who minister together, discipling other people. It could be a small group, it could be uh, in a a small training environment. Like uh, my wife and I teach parenting classes, right? Uh, We're doing that together, she's not doing it independently, that kind of thing. Um, And there are just lots of examples like that. Now, they make this interesting claim that, well, since since, uh, Priscilla is named first here, she's probably the primary teacher in this little conversation. Well, it turns out, I'm on point four here on page 43. If you scan the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times. And four of those times her name comes first, and in two times his name comes first. So what do you conclude from that? It, you can't make much of a point of it here because it's not always the case. And, and um, you know, usually we say, "Ladies and gentlemen," right? We put the the women first, kind of a thing. Yeah. But yeah, it it's. If, you know, if her name was always first, you could maybe say, well, there may be some reason for that. Maybe she's more well-known, or there's some, some other reason. Um, but because she's not always listed first, um, it's hard to make a case out of that. That's, that's the point. So again, the, the point is we need to interpret any passage that we're focusing on, that if it appears to be saying something it's clear that it is not saying something that is in conflict with the rest of scripture. So how does that, how does that inform our interpretation? So. Anyway, that one's creative. And then the last one we have here is number four. Uh, since women, women could prophesy in the early church, they must also be able to teach. And we, we covered this passage, actually, First Corinthians 11, a few weeks ago, where it says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her, disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with a woman whose head is shaved. So, here's the logic. Women can prophesy. Prophesying was an important gift, spiritual gift in the early church. It was operative before uh, the the New Testament was fully completed and distributed and so on. And it was a way that God helped to, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? It was a way that God um, was able to shepherd each local congregation who had at most the Old Testament and the... Uh, usually just the verbal teaching of Christ and the Apostles. And, and uh, certain uh, parts of the New Testament were gradually being distributed, like letters from Paul and, and this kind of thing. Uh, but they didn't really have the full canon of the New Testament to guide them in their decision-making and, and so on. And so God used this, this gift of prophecy not to reveal scripture in every instance, but to give them um, counsel and direction, keep them doctrinally pure, because they had few resources um, in that early stage. And he would do that through both men and women, apparently, as prophets and prophetesses. Is that a word? Prophetesses? I guess it is. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand, though, is that prophesying is not the same as teaching. In fact, every time they're listed as spiritual gifts, they're distinct gifts. There's a gift of prophecy and a gift of teaching. And you see that here in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians. Uh, and then the gift of prophecy, as I was noting, was uh, this special gift. Uh, real-time revelation from God to a congregation not necessarily to to everybody but to this congregation to help them um, um, become clearer on what is true how to go forward, what decisions to make whatever it is Uh, I don't think we're given much indication of um well, there are a few examples, though. Um, like the prophet who foretold that Paul was going to be bound and, and so on. You remember in Acts? Um, and that didn't deter Paul from going to Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, he went anyway. But that was a prophecy. That wasn't part of Scripture. It was just a word that God had given him for that occasion. Um, Anyway, so that was distinct from teaching. In fact, as we saw, was it last week or the week before? Yeah, last week we talked about prophesying in the early church, that it was to be done orderly. And one of the requirements was that when a prophecy was given, it needed to be judged, 1 Corinthians 14 said, by the others who would presumably be the leaders in the church, would have to judge whether that prophecy is consistent with what they know to be true from God's word, from apostolic teaching, the teaching of Christ. And if it seemed to conflict with what they knew to be true from scripture, they would judge it as being... A false prophecy, and that you can see how that might—the need for that might arise. Someone would just get up and say something. Thus says the Lord, and they could be saying anything, right? And you needed to have people who were mature enough and acquainted enough with the scriptures to evaluate. Does that sound like it's coming from God? Is it consistent with everything we know about what God has revealed? Uh, so that was a requirement, and. Um, So the fact that that was given by a man or a woman didn't matter. It still had to be judged to be sure it was consistent with what God had already revealed. And so the fact that it was a woman prophesying in a given case doesn't mean that she was exercising any authority or teaching anybody because what she said is being judged by those who are in a position of authority and oversight. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, And what's interesting, um, that very passage, if you remember from several weeks ago, from 1 Corinthians 11, and even as we read it, um, that passage requires the woman who is prophesying, or praying, as the passage says, needs to have her head covered. Why? As a symbol uh, that she's under authority, under the headship of um, the male leadership in the church, and ultimately Christ, of course. But the very fact that we know that there are women from this passage, women who are... um, who had the gift of prophecy in the local church, um, is, it's all in the context of how they should do that. They should do it showing that they're under the authority. They are not, they are not themselves the authority. And so it's very interesting that those who would, who would conclude that men and women are interchangeable in their roles in the church would go to a passage that says that they're not, right, in order to make their point. But that, again, that unfortunately is fairly typical. You, you kind of bring out of a, of a given verse what you wanted to say, without paying attention not only to the context of all of Scripture but even the immediate context. You would see that your your interpretation is in conflict. It it just doesn't make sense. So, um, yes, there were female prophets in the early church by God's choice, design, and grace. That doesn't mean that they have taught. That doesn't mean they had any authority over men. There's no conflict there with the restrictions in 1 Timothy 2. Yes, sir? Maybe I missed this part because
1: I just joined the group, but um, the women that uh, shaved their heads, they did it for a particular reason?
0: There, There apparently were some Traditions and, and so on, but uh, this is saying that, that that 1 Corinthians 11 is saying that um, that's an unnatural, even shameful thing to do, even though some did it. To some extent, he's also saying in 1 Corinthians 11 um, uh, that a woman who has shorter hair than would be natural for a woman is no, really no, dis, no different than someone who has shaved her head. And so if someone looks at a woman with a shaved head as being disgraced, then he says it's not really much different if they've cut their hair um, more than would be natural. Particularly and the whole context there in 1 Corinthians 11 is not just everybody but those who would have a speaking role in the gathered church. Yeah. Yeah, you can probably listen to the recording from that earlier that earlier lesson. Okay. Well, that was kind of a whirlwind through these four different objections. Any any thoughts, questions? Yeah. Yeah, and you're highlighting there a key distinction. Um, It's easy to make the assumption that uh, if men and women are uh, equal before God, equally reflecting God's image, uh, having equal um, um, inherent worth, and this kind of thing, that that means... That they're completely interchangeable, even to the point of their roles, and yet the roles that God has established are God ordained, both in in the family and in the church, for sure. And um, those different roles don't at all conflict with the the equality that each of them have before God.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. So, this problem has been around a long time, <laughs> right? Um, and it's easy to draw wrong conclusions from all that, but um, th- this distinction in roles, this equality along with um, uh, complementary roles, has been God's design from the beginning before sin, even. It wasn't because of sin. It's even before sin. Sin made it harder, but um, that... that, um, I'm not sure if it's balance. Maybe maybe balance is a good word. The balance between equality and complementary roles is just part of God's design. And um, when we... And we're going to see in a future week that if you emphasize equality and basically ignore differences in roles, that's one set of problems. Or if you em- emphasize um, a difference of roles and forget about equality, that presents also another set of problems. So there is this, it's, it's all together. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. Interesting.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting how God has set up, He has set, uh, in His design, He set a method. And through that method, there's a process. And out of that process, you can see uh, order, which comes from God.
0: And it, it's a good point because it all comes back to God's very nature, right? We, we discussed that God um, being uh, a trinity. Three persons, one God. Uh, completely equal. To say that one is less God than another is heresy. And completely equal. And yet, we know very clearly in scripture that there is a distinction of roles. And in fact, even a hierarchy of authority within the Godhead. And to say that Jesus is inferior to the Father is heresy... And yet he willingly submits to the will of the Father. It's beautiful. In terms of uh, role. Yeah. Not in terms of his essence or being or anything. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's mostly about interpretation or the lack thereof. So a lot of churches, whether they're, they have a hang-up in this area or not, they conduct their church without regard to what the Bible says the church should be doing. Right, and on issues like this, they're either twisting what the scriptures say, or you know, bringing their preconceived ideas into an interpretation of a particular verse without looking at the full teaching of scripture, um, or they just don't bother to look at scripture; they just proceed. Right. Um, and if the scripture says something that seems to be saying otherwise, they just kind of okay. jump over it and let's go to the next topic. <laughs> under the rug. Under the rug. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the important thing here, the lesson for us, for each of us, is the warning here not to approach scripture that way. We should be approaching scripture um allowing scripture to teach us and to bring the meaning out of scripture rather than put the meaning into scripture that isn't there right and we we can't ignore the reality that all of us left our own devices are probably going to do that from time to time we're going to put our preferred meaning into the passage and not do the work it takes to understand um, the, the immediate context the words that are being used there the, the t- context of all of scripture um, so that we're not introducing something that the scriptures don't teach
1: I was just saying to Richard that all, a lot of times what you hear today is my truth mm. so I, I think that's the point you're making there you're, you're interpreting to make it what works for you
0: yeah, yeah so you know, either the scripture is God's word to us or we, we mangle it into something that's not, right? We use it as a, as a weapon to make our points when really it's not making that point at all. Um, but, you know, it's so easy to point our fingers at other people. We need to be very careful ourselves. Uh, Even if it's not our intent, we could go into a passage and say, oh, that seems like it's saying such and such, and then move along without studying to see whether it is saying that. Um, so, So the whole idea of absolute truth is something that people tend to try to avoid because if there is, it holds them accountable. They don't want to be accountable. That's partly what you're you're saying, Marion, about wanting to be in charge, right? Um, It's also probably the underlying motivation for people to believe something like evolution. Because what's the alternative? We're created. If I was created by an all-powerful creator, I must be accountable to him. I don't like that idea. I'm going to believe this other one.
1: (laughs) We come um, from microscopes I and mean, uh, microbes and all that, so yeah. that's more
0: believable for them. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it there's there's an agenda behind it. Yeah. Um, for sure. Well let's go ahead and and close in prayer.